Acts chapter 4, context of the chapter, come to the end of a circumstance and a scene where many people were converted after the healing of a man who everybody knew at the temple. There had been opposition from the temple leadership, the leadership of Israel, those who had actually been instrumental in the death of Christ, crucifixion of Christ. The apostles are taken, rested, and then stand trial and respond with purpose to continue to preach the resurrection of Christ. And when they're released, they pray and ask the Lord for boldness and God's continued working through signs and wonders, which God begins to answer, verse 31. And verse 32, and really if you continued in the context through the next chapter down to verse 11, I think you have a unit here of teaching about the early church and the practice of benevolence, giving, sacrificial giving. Of course, chapter 5, it's in that context that God deals with sin in the midst of that circumstance with Ananias and Sapphira. We're also given the example of Barnabas in verses 36 and 37, but we've got kind of a general overview in verses 33 through 35 of chapter 4 as to what is taking place. So verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then there's an example of that with Barnabas there. But I want to just look at verses 33, excuse me, 32 through 35, and consider this congregation that was of one heart and one soul. It's a beautiful statement there in verse 32. What was taking place in the early church. This church congregation that is spoken of in verse 32, led by the apostles, is on mission. That's a wonderful thing to see a church that is on mission, and that is they were obeying the Lord. The great commission which Christ gave multiple times Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even in Acts, you see a reference to it in the first chapter, they are obeying. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, they are preaching the resurrection of Christ. They are witnessing for Christ. They are doing what Christ said, as he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And while Gentiles are included in that commission, he says in Luke that that is going to begin at Jerusalem, 
and they were to wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. They were to wait for the coming of the Spirit. And as the Spirit of God came and empowered them, they had obviously, based on the first few chapters here of Acts, much work to do at Jerusalem because God had a plan to save many souls. And we find, even in the first few chapters, thousands, literally thousands of people who came to faith in Christ. So this church and the apostles in leadership is on mission. They're doing what Jesus said to do. And they're not so focused on mission that they forget about the care that they are to have for one another. Because in addition to Jesus' great commission, he gave the new commandment. The new commandment, which he said in John 13, verse 34, is that they love one another. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you could say, certainly, if they're on mission, they're doing what Christ commanded them to do in terms of preaching the gospel. Christ didn't only command that. He also commanded them to care for one another, to love one another, even as he had loved them. And I think we see in even the previous chapters that they are both on mission and also uh, caring for one another. They're also showing love to one another. But we find it here in addition to back in Acts chapter 2. And you remember those apostles who were arguing, even as Jesus is foretelling his crucifixion, foretelling the persecution, remember what they were arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? They're arguing about who's going to sit at the right or the left hand. They're arguing about their position in his kingdom. It's those individuals, those apostles who are now leading and who are in this context, not only preaching, but they are responsible for ministering to this large congregation in love. And now they're using their leadership in terms of service, which that's what leadership is. Leadership is service. That's how Jesus defined it. A true leader, according to Jesus' definition, is a servant. Whoever is going to be great among you is not the person who's climbing the ladder, pushing everybody off. It's the person who serves others. And he demonstrated that by by how? He washed their feet. He served them. What would you have me to do for you? He even asked those disciples who were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And following that, he asked Bartimaeus, who is crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. What would you have me to do for you? Now the disciples, the apostles, are put in a position where they're able to serve in leadership. And so what we see in the context here is a church that is on mission, a church that is obeying Christ in terms of the preaching of the gospel, they're also caring for one another, and they are realizing to a certain extent the unity that Christ prayed for. See, the way that those men came together was not by their own will or volition. It was by the work of the Spirit of God which had been implanted in them, and it was also an answer to the prayers of their Lord, who said, In John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world for their sakes. I sanctify them myself so that uh, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus, in his prayer, is praying for the oneness of these disciples who are in his presence as he's interceding for them. But not only them, he's also praying for the ones who would come to believe on him through their word. And what do we find after thousands of people have believed in Christ? They believed in the word of God as preached by the apostles. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They have followed him in baptism. They're now a part of this congregation and they're they're serving together and the description of their unity, and it really is the first point this morning from the text, is just a beautiful expression of Christian unity. It says in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. These are the believers who began back in chapter one. They were praying. They were at Pentecost. I have no doubt there's some who were there at Pentecost who left, but some who stayed and then beyond that these thousands that believed when Peter preached in Solomon's porch and came to Christ as they saw the miracle of that lame man. But notice, it says the congregation, or this is a multitude of people. That word could also be translated multitude. And if they were having problems on a small level, just 11, 12 men divided amongst themselves, now they have been given many, many followers. And what is going to produce the unity among those leaders as well as the larger group? This is not the work of man. This is the work of God. But this is how it's described in verse 32. The congregation or the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They had come to confess Jesus as Messiah and Lord. They believed in the gospel of God. They'd received forgiveness of their sins. They're now one in Jesus Christ. And in that oneness, they're expressing it through one cardia, heart, and one suke, soul. What does that mean? That someone or that these many people, this congregation, this multitude is of one heart and one soul. One of the commentators on this passage pointed out the connection to Deuteronomy, which I think is apparent when you think about loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But that's talking about an individual, talking about everything within you. But this is talking about a group of people whose hearts are united as one. And I would say there is a connection, and the author pointed this out, is that the connection is that they are loving God, there is something going on in their relationship with God, but as they are together with others who are also loving God, believing in the gospel, following Christ, they've now come together and they've found unity in that purpose and in that way of life. So there is an extraordinary relationship between these believers, but it's because they're in fellowship with God through his son and the spirit of God is indwelling them and filling them to do God's will. Calvin, in his commentary on this chapter, said, Surely where faith bears the chief sway, it so knits the hearts of men together that all of them will do one thing. 
for discord springs from the fact that we are not all governed by the same spirit of Christ. But if the same spirit is governing all of God's people and the flesh is not governing them, then you can have unity. You can have one heart. You can have one soul because God is at work by his spirit to bring everyone together. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a God-produced thing. And while we are called to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, this is also something that God does by his spirit within us. And he said he would. Jeremiah 32, one of the promises of gospel times, you could say certainly there was unity by his working in the Old Testament, but as he foretells, Jeremiah does the future. He says, they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. So what happens when a group of people come to know and love God and fear God and they're together and God's commands are regarded, not just God's commands regarding their relationship to him, but also his commands regarding their relationship to one another. Unity is a beautiful thing. One heart and one soul. It would be like, as the psalmist describes back in Psalm 133, all of the tribes of Israel coming together for worship. If you remember in Old Testament worship, there was one temple, there's one altar, there's one place of sacrifice. So when you think about all of that central location, but then the tribes called to whether it was a feast time a special time in Israel, they would come together. And as they came together, they would be making pilgrimages from Dan and Naphtali and Judah and Benjamin and all these tribes coming together, walking on pilgrim roads and singing psalms and coming to the place of worship where there'd be great festival and worship of God and the sacrifice that would be offered by the high priest of Israel with a multitude around And the psalmist says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is a precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down on the edge of his robes. In other words, the high priestly anointing as he's being anointed, the the oil just flowing down. It's a beautiful picture of God's anointing of that person for the purpose of serving him as the high priest of Israel. The psalmist says, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. It's a beautiful thing. You wonder how many times it was actually realized in the Old Testament. When all of God's people were of one heart and one soul. There were certainly feasts of Israel which were only celebrated by portions of the kingdom because the kingdom itself was fractured. Israel, 10 tribes, and Judah, the other tribes. There was much disunity. Sometimes organized around a leader, sometimes just rebellion against God and idolatry. There are all sorts of reasons for disunity. But here, it's not the disunity that's focused on, it's the unity. And it's multitude. 
It's the 12, the 120, the 3,000 portions of them, the 5,000 now. So there are thousands of people, and they're of one heart and one soul. They're focused on their mission. They care for one another. And just by way of application, our church is certainly much smaller than this crowd of thousands, but are we of one heart and one soul? Is there unity here? Are we on mission? Are we all filled with the Spirit? Are we being governed by that Spirit, and are we walking in the Spirit? Are we maintaining the same love? Are we like-minded? Are we taking the humble attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ and considering one another as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2? Are we with Colossians 1, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel? Is that true of us? And I have to confess, as you look around sometimes, I, I don't know that that's always true of us. I don't know that it is true. We don't know what's in one another's hearts, but I think we all need to examine ourselves to see, first of all, whether we're in the faith at all. But beyond that, examine ourselves to see if if there's sin in our lives that's contributing to strife and division and disunity. And through that, the dishonor of God who's called us out of darkness and into his light. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I just ask you today, is that your purpose to preserve unity, to pursue unity? Is there humility in your life? Is there forbearance? Is there forgiveness? Is there a showing tolerance for one another in love? Is there patience? And if there isn't, we need to repent. We all need to repent as we see that natural inclination from time to time rise up in our hearts, which is self and sin and not really God's will in my relationship with others. And we need to remember what we're bound together by. We are in Christ. We have one Lord. We have one faith, one baptism. Paul says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, we have one God, we have one Father. This is one body. There's one spirit. So if there's not oneness when we have all of that, what is the issue? It would be sin. Sin that gets a hold, sin that causes strife, sin unrepented of. And so what we see here in the church is a beautiful thing. It's really a rebuke to a church that is not of one heart and soul. When you see something and in a holy way, you have a jealousy for it. You, you would like to see things that way where you are. But if you'd like to see the things that way where, where you are, when you see it somewhere else, you'd like it here. Well, then what needs to happen is we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at our lives. We need to repent. 
so that we would have one heart and one soul. And I just ask you, are you contributing to that? Are you contributing to the one heart and one soul? Because you are walking, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You are maintaining mutual love. You're seeking love with your fellow members. You're like-minded. You're pursuing that. I just want to exhort you to that. We are, according to Galatians chapter 3, all sons of God, children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. This is a family. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a oneness positionally, but is there a oneness practically? And obviously there are ways to demonstrate that. If it's a family, do you get together with the family? Do you spend time with the family when the family gets together? And whether that's a family meeting or the weekly family meeting, that's a part of it. If there's something that you need to deal with in your relationship with someone else, I want to encourage you to deal with that. I don't know, even, I'll say it this way, I don't even know who I'm talking about or what I'm talking about. I just know that within the context of our lives, we sometimes sin against one another or someone sins against us, and we sometimes just let that go unresolved and then as I see that person or I interact with that person, there's just not that togetherness. And sometimes there's not even a talking to that person at all. Right? That's why Paul had to tell the Corinthians to greet one another. He had to tell them to greet one another. Why did he have to tell them to greet one another? Because they weren't speaking to one another. And it's a very subtle thing, isn't it? To not speak to someone else. Can be very subtle. Or to speak to them very quickly or to not really have that kind of fellowship and communication with them that is true fellowship, truly one heart and one soul. Just kind of the passing conversation about the weather or this or that, but never really, there's something there and that's why they're not really open with you. May the Lord give us grace to repent, and may the Lord strengthen us to be of one heart and one soul, because really what is being described here, again, is in connection with that new commandment, love for one another that has as its effect a testimony to the world. There's a testimony issue. When people look at a church and it's not united in love and it's fractured and divided or there's just not much to that congregation because they're just not, they're not really together, that doesn't stand out. That's not a testimony to the world. But when a church is of one heart and one soul, I mean, we'll see it in the context here, but it is a message to the world when God's people, in spite of their differences, and we have differences, but there's something that's greater than all those differences that brings us together in Christ. There's a oneness in Christ Jesus. He died for us, all of us. He rose for us. We're, his, we're, we're God's children. He is our Father. We will stand before Him one day together, worshiping Him. This unity 
that is taking place here in the church. Verse 32. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful expression. It's experienced by a multitude of believers. How is it manifested? I've given you some application as to how it's manifested, but how is it manifested in the context here? Look at the end of verse 32. It says, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. How is this unity manifested? It's experienced by the multitude. It's manifested by, it's evidenced by sacrificial giving to one another sacrificial giving to one another. They stopped thinking in terms of selfishness, and they began thinking in terms of stewardship. They gave because they recognized that what they had came to to them from God and didn't really belong to them. It belonged to God, and if someone else needed it, they could give it to them. So they're thinking in terms of stewardship and no longer in terms of selfishness. I'm not saying they're absolutely perfect in that, but the the verse describes the general character of this congregation, this large congregation. What's one of the first things we begin to observe in children when they can talk or even before they can talk, but they have a toy in the nursery or somewhere that they want? Sometimes they learn the word, mine, mine. And even if somebody else has it, it's mine, right? And they go after it. And sometimes people get hurt in the process, right? But how do you think about what you have or what you've obtained? How do you think about your possessions, Is it yours? Or is it God's? You start to think in terms of God's money versus my money, and it really changes your perspective. If it's my money, then I can do with it what I want. But if it's God's money, I have to be a steward of it. Most in our country, and we would even say our world, think in terms of mine. Money is something and possessions are something I obtain, I use for my pleasure, really no one else's. I think David has a great perspective on this. I'm going to ask you to turn back to First Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29. In the process of directing Solomon to build the temple, David is giving both direction and also resources for that purpose. And he talked about the wealth that God had given to him. And then he prayed in the presence of the assembly. Look at verse 10. This is 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. It says, So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth and the, and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Just think about that for a moment. The things that you give for God's work are actually coming from him. That's what David is saying. Now, did David go out and fight the battle? Did he gain the spoil? Yes, he did. But he recognized that the victory belonged to the Lord. And that any spoil that came to him was from the Lord. Verse 15, for we are sojourners before you and tenants, as all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I and the integrity of my heart have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy, I've seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. So God is actually working in the hearts of this nation at a time when they needed to build a house of God, they needed to build a temple, and they're bringing their offerings. But in the bringing of their offering, they're recognizing that God is the one who gave this to them. Of course, God was the one who brought them into the land and gave them all sorts of things that they didn't build or plant, cities they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, all those things that God gave to them now they're coming to a place where they're giving back to him from what he had given to them. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 4. So this congregation is actually thinking in terms of stewardship instead of selfishness, and they begin to value giving, sharing, instead of hoarding. This is the opposite of the monopoly mindset, right? You play monopoly, where basically one person wins. I mean, sometimes people stop the game. Two people are tired of playing because it takes so long to put everybody out of business and bankrupt, and you get everything, right? This is the opposite of that monopoly mindset. This is, and imagine, imagine trying to play monopoly with this mindset, you're always giving to the people who need. You're never going to end that game. The word in the context here, common, is a word that is related to the word koinonia, which means fellowship or sharing. So when it says not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. All things were shared. The idea is it's negotiable as to whether or not it's mine or yours. It depends on if you need it. If you need it, you can have it. I don't think we're losing personal ownership here. I think even through you go through the book of Acts and you realize 
that while there's some unusual statements like this, there's not really an argument against people having their own possessions and using them for the Lord's purposes. But in the context of this passage, there's a willingness to give sacrificially because of the way that they're thinking about their possessions. This is God's. There is, as you look at even history, New Testament history and groups surrounding Christianity, there were those groups that actually practiced kind of a communal uh, lifestyle where they sold all their possessions and put it into a common fund and they lived in connection with that common fund. I don't believe that's what's taking place here. One writer said it this way, the Christians in Jerusalem lived by the principle of voluntarily sharing possessions to strengthen the unity and harmony in the community. So that statement at the end of verse 32 tells us this is how they're thinking. They didn't claim to have anything that was their own, but all things were common. How does that work out? Well, we'll see that in a little bit. But before we get to how they're actually dealing with their possessions, there's another statement here about the testimony of the apostles. So you have a beautiful expression of the unity of the church, but what is going on? I said they're on mission. Verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. What was producing the mindset in verse 32 and the actions in verse 34 and following? Well, It had to do with their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, their oneness in him, and the truth of the gospel was motivating them to live in the way that they were living. Notice in verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony. That power, I believe, has to do, first of all, with the Holy Spirit that is referenced back in Acts chapter 1 and certainly Other times here in the book of Acts, Jesus had said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the difference for Peter when he's preaching at Pentecost versus the night that he's scared about what this girl is going to think if he confesses that he knows Jesus, what's the difference between those two? It's the Spirit of God is now empowering Peter, not only on the day of Pentecost, but in the face of Israel's leaders to preach the resurrection of Christ even though they don't want him talking at all, much less talking about the resurrection. Spirit of God has come and has given him and the other apostles boldness. And we talked about boldness. We looked at that previous passage as they pray for boldness. Look back there, verse 29, where it says, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That's that word, boldness. This is a great study in the New Testament to see how boldness is spoken of. We talked about it a little bit. Uh, Reference to Acts 14, 1 Thessalonians 2, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul asks prayer for boldness. Do you remember that? He says to the Ephesians as they pray, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 
He's asking for boldness. And then he says, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He's actually in jail for preaching the gospel. And he's asking for more boldness to preach the gospel. He's asking people to pray, which tells you that it comes from God. Paul had certainly some natural gifts God had given him. He also had spiritual gifts from the very beginning when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And as he's in Damascus and then eventually in Jerusalem, the scriptures multiple times talk about the boldness that he had. At Damascus, Luke records, he spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus. And then when he came to Jerusalem, he again spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. I'm just suggesting that the power, the great power that the apostles have has to do with the Holy Spirit as the source. And the effect of that is the boldness and the confidence that they have as they proclaim. But we would say it doesn't end there, right? Because someone can have the power of the Holy Spirit and boldness as they speak, but then how does the effect come if someone is going to respond to the gospel? How does that effect come? We would say anytime a sinner turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God has convicted and called and drawn that person to himself. And so I don't see it in the verse, but I think you can understand from what's taking place that through the power of the Spirit working through the apostles and this great testimony, giving them boldness, that now more sinners are hearing of Jesus, the Messiah, and they're responding in faith. I think we'll see that later on as the story is told further. But here, this is in direct answer to the prayers. So their testimony is exhibiting great power, and it's also gospel-focused. What are they talking about? What are they telling people about? And I think if, if you work, read verse 33, the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is shorthand, could I say it this way, for the gospel. It's a figure of speech where you're using a part to describe the whole. The gospel includes more than the resurrection, but the resurrection is, one person said, the culmination of the gospel. It is the death, the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf that paid for our sins, but it's the resurrection that demonstrates that Christ truly was who he says he was, and he rose again, as Romans says, for our justification. It's the fulfillment of promises of God, the prophecy of Christ himself. And so this testimony that they're giving is testimony to the gospel message. So they're on mission. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Go preach the gospel to every creature. They've started here in Jerusalem in God's providence and in his plan. And there's this mutual care for one another. What's that? And how is that working itself out? Well, can I ask this question before we get into the next verse? What did the gospel do for Zacchaeus? What did the gospel do for him? When he believed the gospel, what changed? Well, he believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but what else changed? What is he telling Jesus? And as Jesus hears, Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. It's not merely his confession of Jesus. 
It is also the repentance in his life that has to do with his stuff and how he obtained his stuff. There's a change in his mindset and his purpose regarding his possessions. And if we look further in the book of Acts, what did the gospel do for the Philippian jailer? What did the gospel do for Lydia? She sells, she's making profit. She obviously has a large house based on the context of her life. But what did the gospel do for Lydia? Yes, she, the Lord opened her heart to receive the things that were spoken by Paul, but then she prevailed upon Paul and his co-workers. She, she said, you've got to stay with me. I will take, you've got to come to my, and use it for meetings. It just changed her perspective where before, and we don't know all of Lydia's life before, but she wasn't using it for the gospel before. No, she began sharing her home with that infant church. See, the prevailing attitude of sinners apart from Christ is mine, mine, mine. Even if you're doing things for other people, sometimes it's my reputation or my stature or build me up because I'm doing these things. It's the philanthropist who's doing things, but it's really not because of the good things that he's doing for people. It's for how he's building himself up in the process. And we see that in chapter five. But when we come to Christ, we understand that God gave his only son for our salvation and that the Lord Jesus himself laid down his life. When we come to Christ and we understand those truths about God, about Christ, and we're given a spirit in us who then produces love in our hearts, then our concern is no longer ourselves. It is the Lord and it is his people. Of course, it's seeing others come to believe and trust in Christ as well. But I want you to notice the end. There's a different word translated here at the end of verse 33, abundant, but it's the word great. It's the same word as great power. It's just translated differently. Great power, great grace. But it's translated abundant grace was upon them all. So their testimony is gospel-focused. It obviously exhibits great power, but their testimony and what is taking place here in Jerusalem with these believers brings, I would put it this way, it brings favor to them. Now, you might, you might look at the words and you immediately associate grace with what? With God. Because God is a God of grace. He's the author of grace. He shows us grace. He will continue to show us grace in the ages to come. And grace is such a blessing to know when you read through the scriptures and you see God's grace and his mercy and what it does for people it changes them. And I think you could definitely see in the lives of these people, God's grace, his grace of salvation, his grace that's enabled them to do what they're doing. But I think if you think about the context of Acts and even other contexts that are just like this, I don't believe it's talking about God's grace. I believe it's talking about the favor that they have in the community. 
So when it says abundant grace was upon them all, abundant favor, abundant favor from others in Jerusalem looking on. Uh, Look over at chapter 5. You might not have to turn the page. Verse 12 says that the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. The people held them in high esteem. The Christian community is distinct, and people are looking at them and the way that they're doing things and what is going on, and they have now a reputation, a public reputation. They have a testimony. And even the people of Jerusalem who are not believers are looking on and seeing this. I believe if you look back at chapter 2 as well, Look at chapter 2, verse 47. A similar context. Well, let let me just go back to verse 44 to, to see that it's a similar context. It says in verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Okay? So I'm not denying in any way that God's grace is in operation in Acts chapter 4 for these people to do what they're doing, but I'm, I'm suggesting that the way that Luke is describing this tells us of how others are looking at the church. There's great favor now. For these people, abundant grace. And what was so commending the early church to the people of Jerusalem at this stage of development? They commended them in chapter 2, but what about now? And Luke has the word for in verse 34. So there's a connection between what is said in verse 33 and now verse 34. The explanation for the abundant grace was because there was now a complete absence of poverty. And there was an extraordinary spirit of generosity. And there was an efficient method by the apostles of delivering the possessions, the wealth that was coming to their feet that now they could distribute to those in this multitude who had a need. It's remarkable what God is doing. Notice the absence of poverty. Verse 34, it says, for there was not a needy person among them. There was not a person who had a need that wasn't met. That's pretty extraordinary. When there's such a large multitude of people. And we understand that the reason there wasn't a needy person among them is not because there had been some kind of oil boom. It wasn't some lawsuit that had been taken care of for all the citizens of Jerusalem because of a water problem, and now everybody's got a bunch of money in their pocket. That's not what's going on, and it is this distinct group. It's not that there's no needy people in Jerusalem. It's that within this group, there's nobody needy. 
there's an absence of poverty because there's an extraordinary spirit of generosity. I would put it this way, that God is moving his people to be open-handed with their possessions. Not tight-fisted, but open-handed. Verse 34 continues, for all, notice that, all, who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. When it says all who had lands or houses, that's a group within the group. Not everybody in the group has that, but some do. Some who had come to Christ were wealthy. They had land. If you consider Barnabas as an example, he owned a tract of land. He owned a piece of land that he wasn't interested in keeping because of this greater purpose and there would be Barnabas and others like him who then, out of a spirit of generosity, sold it. And as they sold it, they brought, notice verse 34, the end of the verse. And this is significant as we continue on. You see that word proceeds? At least in the New American Standard, it says the proceeds of the sales. The word there is price. So if someone were to sell a piece of property, like Barnabas sold that land, and let's say that land is worth $10,000. What's the, what's the price of the land? It's that. It, in other words, it's all the amount. It's, not, it's different from a portion. He's not selling the land and giving half to the church and then keeping the other half to buy something for himself. He's bringing the price of the land to the apostles' feet. And that is the extraordinary generosity that's going on. Notice it says, all who were owners of land or houses would sell them. This is an ongoing activity. And as they sold them, they're bringing the prices of the sales to the apostles' feet. For Barnabas, again, that's not $10,000. It'd be shekels or whatever it would be, and he'd bring it all of it to the apostles. All of it. So that then as it was given to the apostles, laid at their feet, then they would consider those who had need. It doesn't appear, we don't know the exact process, but it doesn't appear people are now begging for that money. It's given to the apostles. The apostles are aware or become aware of needs, and that money is being distributed to the people who are in need. Now, if I could say it this way, this is really not a new thing. This is not something that is extraordinary within Israel as a whole. They gave alms. But did they give alms in this way? Did they take a, a, a possession and entirely give it to the Lord's work? John the Baptist, as he preached about the one coming after him and preached repentance, when he preached and made application of repentance, the repentance had to do with people's possessions. When John was giving instruction and the people asked, what shall we do? If we're going to show fruits of repentance, what shall we do? And John said, the person who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. So whether it was food 
or a garment or by by extension here later on when when the issue became a bigger need and people who genuinely needed help and they were needy than even a piece of land that is that is mine becomes just something I have to steward for the sake of helping my fellow believers because I'm one with them and that's what's going on. So I say John the Baptist was saying that. Jesus, remember, said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Jesus was talking about possessions too. He's trying to, at the very front of his preaching of the gospel, show that it does cost you everything to follow Christ. Does it cost you everything? And the disciples even said, Lo, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus made the promise, of course, that even in this life, not just the next, but even in this life, there would be a return for what they left. In this life, you'll receive houses and lands and fathers and brothers. There's there's an implication in those promises in the Gospels that as you give up what belongs to you, but you become a part of his people, then what belongs to them belongs to you. And if you've ever traveled anywhere in fellowship with Christians who are giving and sacrificial and just are willing to share their home or whatever, it is an amazing thing to see those who are following Christ and their willingness to just open up their home and give voluntarily because God has given to them something they can never repay. But the only way that they know how to serve him is by obeying him with regard to what they have. Remember what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what is taking place in the early church is there's this beautiful unity. There is a focus on mission, preaching the gospel. And the circumstances are such that people are not having to think about scraping by or just getting by or all their focus is on their stuff. They're able to participate in the mission. You see that? They're able to participate in the mission. And as time has gone along in church history, and I think you, if you just studied Christian generosity, Christian love in terms of even selling possessions and giving to one another, I think you'd see an extraordinary story. You see bits and pieces of it from time to time. There's a woman named Martha Wallace. And her home in England became known as, by people who frequented this home, the Gospel Inn. Because she showed hospitality to pastors as they had meetings. They came to her house and that's what William Carey called her home, the Gospel Inn. Part of the reason it was called the Gospel Inn is because some of the conversations that went on there 
and things that came out of those conversations. One of the things that came out of the conversations of Carrie and other men, Christians who were trying to obey the Great Commission, was a plan for Carrie to go to India. They formed a society for the propagating of the gospel among the heathen, particular Baptist society for propagating the gospel among the heathen. And as they formed that, and William Carey said, I will go and purpose to go, plan to go, found co-workers to go with him. He found two others that with him became known as the Sarampore Trio. And they're getting ready to get on a ship. And the ship, for some reason, is delayed, but the pastors who were supporting Carrie and his friends decided to use that as an occasion to go to fellow churches and say, here's what's going on. These men are about to go to India to reach these people for the gospel, and they were able to raise funds because of that delay in the place where they're about to take off. And so more people were able to participate in that mission. These pastors themselves, who were not wealthy, helped to fund that mission And then Carrie went. And as he went with William Ward, Joshua Marshman, eventually another missionary who was only there for two years, but they went to India and started preaching the gospel. It took time. In fact, seven years before the first person came to Christ. Of course, they had to learn other languages, That was part of their task, but as they preached the gospel, a man by the name of Krishna Pal, who was a Hindu, came to Christ. And so here's this this Hindu convert, convert from Hinduism to Christianity, named Krishna Pal. He has come to Christ, and it's because people in one place gathered together, unified in purpose, on mission, sent someone with their funds to be able to go reach someone with the gospel. And then as that first convert is reached, Krishnapal, the news came back to those pastors in England. One of them's name was John Sutcliffe. And as Sutcliffe learned about the conversion of Krishnapal, he wrote to Krishnapal and he said, The gospel breaks down every middle wall of partition, making us of one heart and one soul. Neither distance of situation, difference of customs, language, or color shall prevent a union of the Spirit. See, this oneness of heart and soul, yes, it is for an individual congregation, but it's for all of the body of Christ. And you can better believe that when we stand before and bow before the Lamb for sinners slain, that we will be of one heart and one soul. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if through our oneness of heart and soul, we're on mission ourselves and participating in helping others to become of one heart and one soul and to be standing or again kneeling bowing before the Lamb for sinners slain, and to have on our right hand and our left people who have come to Christ, people who have believed on Christ as a part of our testimony. 
You really have to have eyes of faith to see this. This is what the word of God envisioned. That's what Christ envisions for us as he gives us the great commission. Your life is not your own. Not if you're following Christ. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. If you lose your life for Christ's sake and his gospel's sake, you'll find it. And you'll find many in your company who can be one heart and one soul with you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray, even as we consider this passage, that you'd help us to apply it, not only in terms of our giving and support of missions, but just in our practical care and love for one another. Help us to remember that Christ laid down his life for us. And if we have a brother or sister in need, we pray that we would recognize that if we have this world's goods and we can be a blessing to help them, Lord, help us to do that. I do thank you, Lord, for even as I'm reflecting on the opportunity we have had for benevolence in this congregation. I thank you that as long as I have been here, and I'm sure in the history of the church as a whole, that there has been a benevolent spirit and heart, a love for one another that does engage people to give. And even beyond any fund, I know that I have seen and can testify, Lord, that there have been giving hearts, both in terms of time and resources, effort. And so I rejoice in that. But I do pray, Lord, that you would continue to work amongst us by your spirit, that we might see that realized in our church for the sake of your name, for the sake of the testimony of Christ. We pray that we might be, as a church of one heart and one soul, on mission, on task, and caring for one another. And we ask for your help and your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.